please stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, uh, good morning, church. Um, excited to be here with everybody this morning. It's a joy to be with you. As, uh, as Justin often says, we, we miss you. Uh, it's not ideal to gather in this virtual way, but until things are different, this is where we are. Um, today's actually a, um, uh, it's a bit of a milestone for us. It actually marks eight months to the day since we were last together as a church community, we were worshiping on a Sunday. 245 days. It was March 8th. On that Sunday, we were in our Learning to Live series. I preached on the topic of the Bible, interestingly enough. It was the end of daylight savings time that Sunday. It was a a community lunch Sunday. The theme was your most colorful food. Ironically, we had fried chicken and fried fish. I brought mac and cheese. The Hoods, they brought a veggie tray. The Johnsons brought lentil soup. The Mars, they brought strawberry gooey butter cookies. To say that a lot has happened in eight months since we were last together, eating JC and Daniel's sour cream biscuits and homemade berry jam is an understatement. A lot has happened. A lot of things have changed. But what hasn't changed is the Lord, the righteous one who is on the throne, who does not change like the phases of the moon. The Lord is from the beginning, the first and the last, the one who never leaves us nor forsakes us, the one who comforts us, who is our good shepherd and who abides in us, the one who is dealing with sin and sorrow and justice and oppression, who is making all things new and setting right all things that are wrong. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this morning, as on that morning 245 days ago, with the smell of fried chicken in the hallway, we gather as a church to remember and to celebrate the work of Christ on the cross and to consider what that work means for our lives today. So good morning, church. It's good to be with you, even in this virtual way. So a number of years ago, uh, my family and I, we lived in Jos, Nigeria. Uh, Lisa and I, we were working for an AIDS foundation in central Nigeria, and we were living in an apartment building that was in downtown Jos. Now, during this time in the life of the country, there were two phenomena that were going on at the time. First, 
there were episodic blackouts. The, the electricity would go off. Sometimes it would go off like for hours at a time, leaving whole sections of the city dark, except for those places that had gas-powered generators. The second phenomenon that was going on was called The Gardener's Daughter. Now, The Gardener's Daughter was a television soap opera that had taken the country's attention by storm. But it, but it wasn't just any, like, Nigerian soap opera. It was actually a Mexican novella. Now, if you're not familiar with a novella, a novella is a certain genre of Spanish-speaking soap opera that drips with emotion and passion. And unlike American soap operas, they don't drone on for years. But typically, they're only like one season, maybe two seasons long. So, The Gardener's Daughter. Now, it had been dubbed over with English and was now in syndication throughout Nigeria. So, each night for several weeks, The Gardener's Daughter it came on TV and our neighbors in our building, they were like just locked in like rapt attention trying to figure out what's going to happen to The Gardener's Daughter. The problem was the electricity would go out, but no problem for me, I had a generator. And it was loud. So several nights a week when our building would go dark during the gardener's daughter, I would fire up the generator, which was extremely loud. And my neighbors throughout the apartment building, they would hear my generator and they would come to my house to watch the gardener's daughter. So I would have dozens of neighbors sitting in my living room and together we would watch a Mexican novella dubbed over into English in the geographic center of Nigeria, West Africa. Now, the characters in this novella, they, they're beautiful. They were amazing and amazingly deceptive. Like, Juan Pablo was the forlorn lover of Gabriela, but she was pledged to marry Marco, who was, we found out later, in a weird twist of the show, he was actually her half-brother. And there were friends who weren't friends, but only friends because Gabriela was wealthy. And then there was the father who, at the beginning of the show, we didn't like him at all because he was mean to Gabriela. But later, we loved him because we realized the whole time he was only protecting her. And throughout episode after episode, the characters that we liked and thought were good, they turned out to be like horrible people. People who just wanted to use people and the people we thought were evil and self-serving they were like the heroes of the whole thing and my neighbors are in my living room they're watching this thing and they would shout like no Gabriela don't love him he's bad and they would boo at the dad only later to cheer him on and to chide one another they were like I told you so I knew he was good you should trust your father and like these arguments would break out about the gardener's daughter in my living room it was an absolutely remarkable experience and watching a novella often is. I would commend you to it. But every time throughout the show, there was like this gut punch that would happen. Whenever a character that we liked, whenever they let us down, or like they, they double-crossed somebody in the show, and my neighbors watching, like they would literally like fall off the couch in anger. They would stand up and walk around my living room. They would erupt with emotion because that's what happens. Whenever we encounter the revelation that the external life of someone, whether in film or novels or novellas or in our own lives, when their external life and their internal motivations, when there's a difference, when we see that, when we see that people aren't who we thought that they were and that they're more treacherous or that they're not who they purport to be, it, it affects us emotionally. In Matthew 5, 8, in the Beatitudes, Jesus speaks to this. Jesus warns against this duplicitous way of living and invites us towards a life that is consistent in thought and word and deed. Church, we are, uh, we're several weeks into our sermon series on the Beatitudes of Jesus. Beginning in October, we begin walking through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in a specific section of that sermon called the Beatitudes. The Rosedale Small Group uh, read that passage earlier in our service. 
Over a year ago, at the end of 2019, the pastors and staff, we get together on a planning retreat, and we planned out the different sermon series for this year, for 2020. And we knew that we were coming into a presidential election year, and we sensed that it was going to be a contentious one. We suspected emotions and rhetoric would be high, as would anxiety. We suspected tensions would be deep and probably widening. And in light of what we as a community and a country would be facing, we, we sense the Spirit leading us to center on this, on the Beatitudes, on, on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In a, an election season where words could seem cheap or spiteful or painful or vile, it seemed to us that the Spirit was calling us to center ourselves on the words of our Savior and to let Christ's words be our guide and the words that resounded in our ears and in our souls. We wanted Jesus to remind us of who we were meant to be and who we were called to be as his followers. The thing is, Christ City is, we're more than sermons and sermon series. For the past week as a church, we've been gathering at noonday to reflect on who God is in this moment in our collective lives as Americans. We paused and we prayed and we will continue to pray this week. I hope that you'll join us. Because our prayers for our country and for the leaders of our country, that they don't end on an election day any more than our faith ends at the conclusion of a worship service. In addition to our noonday prayers this, this past week, following the historic election of Joe Biden as president and Kamala Harris as our nation's first woman vice president and first person of color serving in that office, I was on a prayer call with our friends at the D.C. Unity and Justice Fellowship. I know several of you were on that same prayer call with me. On that call, I was, I was given the task of praying prayers of intercession for our country. During the call, one of the things that I prayed then was for God to guide us in his tenderness. For God to lead us by his careful hand. And what I said then, what I want to share with you now, was, was this. I prayed, Lord, be the good shepherd to us that we know that you are. Protect us, protect us from bitterness or resentment or cynicism. There are so many of my siblings in Christ, particularly siblings of color that are weary. So many for whom the American experiment has been one long walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Lord, remind us that you're with us, that you guide us with your righteousness, that you comfort us even when we find ourselves at tables filled with enemies. Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Reminders of your deliverance of us, your liberation for us, so that we might be signs, instruments, and a foretaste of your kingdom. Now, when we gathered earlier this week uh, with the DC Unity and Justice Fellowship, we, we didn't know who'd won the election. And though we know now, that prayer still holds. May God in his love guide us. It's the same prayer that we prayed at the end of 2019 when we planned out which scriptures we'd be studying now as a church. God, would you, would you guide us? It is why we are in this sermon series now, wrestling with and focusing on the teachings of Jesus so that God might guide us in this season of life to be his children, God's heralds, not of an election, but of a kingdom. It can be instructive to remember that Jesus' original audience was a group of poor, oppressed, disenfranchised Jews. They were a people ruled by a foreign power, an empire intent on marring their humanity, eroding the truth that they were, that they were image bearers of God. Uh, Jesus' words were a comfort to them, and, and Jesus, God, is providing a, a balm to those who are poor, a, a consolation to those who mourn, a celebration to the meek. 
However, the thing is, Jesus isn't only comforting, he's also confronting. You see, in this same Sermon on the Mount, God is is producing a challenging invitation to show mercy, to be peacemakers, to endure persecution. All of this, the comfort and the challenges, what Jesus was putting forward on that hillside in Palestine as he spoke to those oppressed and maltreated, yet hopeful and expectant followers. Comfort and challenge. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. As we move through the aftermath of a Trump presidency and the coddling of white supremacy that marked the administration, and as we look towards a presidential transition that is showing signs of being anything but peaceable, in the wake of that still smoldering ache of racial injustice that doesn't end with elections and ever-rising death tolls due to the pandemics of gun violence and coronavirus, we still need Jesus' words of comfort and Jesus' call to the challenging work of faith that is ahead of us. This week, uh, my wife, Lisa, she wrote an article for the Missio Alliance blog post. In it, she reflects on what's behind us and what's up ahead. In her article, she notes this. The work ahead will require a steadfast commitment to healing and reparation, both of which are predicated on personal and communal repentance. She goes on to say, without an unwavering dependence on the Holy Spirit, this work will be shallow and short-lived. We must continue to pursue justice no matter how costly. And it will cost. It will cost time. It will cost money. It will cost personal comfort and ease of relationships. It will be messy. It will make us tired. But it will be the good kind of tired. It is into this tempestuous moment that Jesus says to us with words of comfort and of challenge, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning, in the moments that I have remaining, this is what I want to do. I want us to look at the sixth, uh, the sixth beatitude. It comes out of Matthew 5, 8. It says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, I got to tell you, when I, every time I come across Matthew 5, 8, a little small confession, uh, I chuckle. Uh, there's a sort of this internal chuckle whenever I read it because I read this beatitude and when I read pure in heart in my head I hear coach Eric Taylor of the Dillon Panthers from the TV show Friday Night Lights saying clear eyes full heart can't lose and somehow when I read Matthew 5 8 I'm transported back to my days quarterbacking for the Skyline Raiders and the beatitude morphs into this pep talk before the big game. Now, that's probably way more information than you care to know about the ridiculous inner workings of my mind, but there it is. I tell you that because my context can have a dangerous effect on my reading of this beatitude. You see, in, in Jesus' context, this was an alarming thing to say, and in keeping with all of the alarming things that Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I mean. In the Greco-Roman philosophical world of Jesus' day, the inner soul of a person was actually divorced from one's outward actions. 
for Greeks, one's actions were, they were just separated from one's inner motivations. They, they were different and distinct and unaffected by one another, or so they thought. However, in the biblical view of things, the inner soul and the outer soul, they were connected. They were intertwined. There was a holistic understanding of one's humanity that held the inner and outer lives in tandem. As a matter of fact, oftentimes in the Bible, the word for heart and the word for soul, they were used interchangeably and referred to one's truest self. As a theologian and author and seminary professor Glenn Stassen puts it, biblically, the heart is just not some inner self, but it's actually a relational organ. The heart is the seat of exchange between my inner motives and my motivations and my outward expression of those inner motives. When I act angrily towards someone, say a neighbor banging on the walls or something, my heart gets involved. It, it beats faster. When, when I've fallen in love, my life gets involved in the romance. The Bible and Jesus understands that our hearts and our lives, our inner life and our outer living, that they're connected. Consequently, to, to be pure in heart is more than simply ensuring that our motivations are proper. Our inner life, our souls, the inner quality of being, it's vital because from it flows our actions. However, neither is it enough simply to have the right actions. It isn't enough to do the right things, whatever those things are that you deem right. In other words, in, in, in contemporary vernacular, it isn't enough to simply say one's heart is in the right place. That's only half of what the Beatitude is commending. And neither is it enough to execute the right actions, whether those actions be a life of piety or a life of justice-seeking. If not connected to godly motives, then it becomes another form of ceremonial purity done for the approval of one's collective tribe and not an embodied confession of faith in the God of righteousness and justice. Jesus is continually focusing on matters of the heart and one's motivations for one's actions. What one does is incredibly important. And yet time and again, Jesus exposes that the motives behind the actions are equally important to explore. Purity of heart and the biblical beatitude sense of the word and meaning involves integrity. A connection between outward action and inward thought. And integrity from the word integer, meaning the quality of being whole or undivided. It's where we get the word integrated. The challenge of this, of this beatitude is also an invitation. And it's the invitation to live an integrated life. A life wherein our outward living is a reflection of our inward formation. Where what we do... And who we are in our souls share the same address in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts. To be pure in heart is to have unity in one's skin, lacking any, any duplicity between your motivations and your actions. Many commentators, and, and I would share in this belief, many commentators believe that in this beatitude, that Jesus actually has Psalm 24 in mind. Psalm 24 is a psalm of ascent, meaning it was a it was a psalm that was sung when a worshiper made their way to Mount Zion in order to worship the Lord. It was a song sung in anticipation of being in the very presence of God. In psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, they, they say this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. 
Well, the psalmist is asking, they're asking a rhetorical question that Jesus is answering in Matthew 5. Who can ascend the Lord's mountain? Who can enter the place where God dwells? Stated differently, who can see God? The psalmist responds with their own answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't trust in idols. Jesus reiterating and clarifying, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. For they are the ones who can ascend the Lord's mountain. They're the one who sees God. See what's captured in the Beatitude and what's articulated in Psalm 24. Clean hands, or one's actions, one's works of compassion, righteousness and justice. Clean hands is, is connected with purity of heart, one's soul, one's motivations, one's loves. They are integrated. And to separate them is to disintegrate. Therapists, Counselors and front porch sages will tell you that a man can only go so long living one way on the outside, but living another way on the inside. After a while, you break down, you break apart, you disintegrate. What is insightful in Psalm 24 is the recognition that the trigger for such disintegrating, disintegrated living is most often idolatry. Something other than God has captured our attention and affection and consequently is skewing our heart and our lives or both. Theologian and activist Clarence Jordan in describing this disintegrating life, he says that people's conflicting loyalties, it makes them wretched and confused and tense. You see, having to keep their eyes on two masters at once, it makes them cross-eyed. And their vision is so blurred that neither image is clear. An apt description of one who is impure of heart, but tense and confused. But Jordan would go on to say, but the eyes of the inwardly and outwardly pure are single. That is, they're focused upon one object and their sight is not impaired. That's why Jesus said, for they shall see God. They, they see God because their lives are in focus, in focus with the reign of God and the presence of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The seeing of God is the back half of the Beatitude. Throughout the Bible, there's a theme dealing with the seeing of God. In parts of the Old Testament, there are those that wanted to see God. Moses went on a mountain collecting the Ten Commandments. He hid himself in the rocks, and the backside of the Lord passed by, and Moses was changed just by seeing the back of God. In the New Testament, there's this parallel story of Jesus on the mountain with a few of his disciples. The disciples, they see Jesus with Moses and Elijah and the Lord is present. And upon seeing the Lord in this way, Jesus and the disciples, they are all changed. They're transfigured and transformed. In all of these stories, Old and New Testament, to see God is to go through some transformation, to be altered by God's majesty and beauty and to be overwhelmed by God's love and his care and his embrace. However, seeing God doesn't always alter one's immediate circumstances. In, uh, in Luke 1, Mary, Jesus' mother, she sings a song called the Magnificat. In it, she's responding to a vision of God that she's glimpsed upon learning that she will give birth to the Savior. She begins her vision of God by saying, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. 
Mary, in, in her purity of heart, caught a glimpse of God, of the one who would bring down rulers from their thrones and lift up the humble. She caught a glimpse of it in her own story and the ways that God was dealing with her. And she pointed others towards that same truth, the truth that we can catch glimpses of God's kingdom now, even while we anticipate its fullest revelation in the age ahead. Christ City, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying to us in this beatitude is an invitation, an, an appeal to us, individually and communally, to be pure of heart so that we might see God, catch a glimpse of God's kingdom, and point others towards that vision. Matthew 8 is an invitation to us to have our heart for the Lord and for the city be matched by our acts of compassion and justice for our neighbors, all of our neighbors. It's a, it's a summon to us to have our advocacy, our protests, and our outreach, and our proclamation of God's kingdom be an outward expression of hearts filled with love, not anxious nor filled with duty, but abounding in joy because of who God is and what he's done. As we move and live and serve, motivated by God's love towards us, our prayer is that we will see God and God's kingdom in our midst. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come to you this morning <laughs> with clear eyes and full heart. We come to you longing to see and experience the presence of the Almighty in this moment so that we too might be changed and transformed for the sake of your kingdom and for the good of our city and our world. God, I pray even in these moments as we have prayed and preached and read scripture and sang and dedicated our young ones to you, God, I pray that you would meet us in this moment and that we would be changed. We would catch a glimpse of you and we would be transformed. God, stir in our hearts and make it, may it find a way and make a way into our actions. May it be true of us individually and collectively. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.